Lucky 13. VegCast. And this will be the last VegCast for May. VegCast. A full menu from first to last. VegCast. Hey everybody, welcome back to VegCast. This is Vance, and as I said, uh, this will be the very last VegCast for May. Uh, because we actually had another one in May, uh, which originally the uh, schedule of VegCast was supposed to be at least two a month. Uh, in the past few months, events have conspired against me such that I've been struggling to even get out one VegCast a month, but I promised there would be at least one more in May. And so uh, this is that one, and we do have a full menu as always for this VegCast. Uh, we have an interview with Dr. Will Tuttle, uh, who most of you have probably heard of and have probably heard uh, a keyboardist, musician, composer, and uh, lecturer and author, uh, author of the World Peace Diet. We'll be talking to him a little later. Uh, we'll also have a little commentary on the news ripped from today's headlines, and we'll actually rip it from the day's headlines for you. And as always, we will have a musical selection. This one from a group you may have heard of if you're a regular VegCast listener. It's called Green Beings, but it is uh, relevant to our commentary. And as always, uh, we'll have another science fact for your delectation and infotainment. All that is coming up on all right, now, first of all, let's get to ripping the news from today's headlines. There we go. We have ripped out the uh, recent story of Barbaro, a horse that everybody loves, uh, who was the favorite to win the Preakness race after winning the Kentucky Derby, but tragically uh, had took a bad step on the way out of the gate and uh, wound up... Uh, damaging his ankle and had to have five hours of surgery and we're still touch and go as of this uh, recording session. So uh, everybody is uh, waiting to see what happens with Barbaro, sending him best wishes. And there have been a couple of uh, articles uh, here and there taking a look at what uh, the Im larger implications of this are. And I just thought I would uh, highlight a couple of those as they... Uh, kind of exemplify the mainstream attempt to grapple with uh, an ethical question uh, while still saddled, and I'm taking that uh, from one of the headlines, saddled with the imperative to uh, come back around to the status quo. And as we'll see, uh, this requires a, a certain lapse in logic here and there. Uh, one of these is from Saturday's Philadelphia Inquirer, and by Saturday, I mean May 27th. Uh, it was on the front page, which is uh, seems like really good play for a, an article called Horse Racing is Still Saddled by Cruelty Issue. But I should point out that this often seems to happen, that uh, articles about animal concerns wind up in this Saturday paper, which is, uh, of course, for those of you familiar with uh, Meat Facts and our chronicling of the uh, bad news about meat that is consistently released on Friday, well, this Saturday paper, that's where those stories show up. The paper that 
nobody reads. Uh, actually, maybe, I don't know, 2 3% of uh, newspaper readers actually do also read the Saturday paper. So it is in the paper, but it's on Saturday. The, this article is by Alfred Lubrano, and uh, it does a pretty good job, all told, of trying to get into this ethical question. Um, the uh, early paragraphs read, When Kentucky Derby winner Barbaro broke his right hind leg at the Preakness Stakes last Saturday, an old debate about the humaneness of racing was reignited. Uh, and, of course, the headline said, Cruelty, and... Humaneness and cruelty are not exactly two ways of uh, phrasing the same thing. One is more intense uh, than the other. You can say something is inhumane, but calling it cruel uh, adds uh, another level, I think, of intensity, uh, which we'll, we'll see turns out to be significant. At any rate, he continues... Akin to criticisms of football, boxing, and auto racing, the knock on horse racing is that athletes are exploited by moneyed interests to push themselves, sometimes with the use of harmful drugs, both legal and illegal, beyond capacity to their breaking points. Now, so the question is uh, whether the athletes, uh, in this case horses, uh, being so uh, pushed and drugged and everything else, whether that's humane or not, whether it's ethical, as the inside headline called it, horse racing still saddled by ethics issue. Yet another way of phrasing it, which is less, still less intense, you can say something is unethical without calling it cruel. So we see there's different flavors uh, being presented uh, in terms of how we're contextualizing this, what the central question is. Is it ethics? Is it humaneness? Is it cruelty? And so uh, the author kind of winds around in there. But there are a couple of interesting gems in here. One of the uh, early paragraphs talks about the science behind this and why there really isn't a lot of science examining whether this is good for horses or bad for horses. And one scientist uh, comes right out and says, as a scientist, I have to apply to jockey clubs to get money for research. It's like getting money from tobacco companies to fund tobacco research. And as we all know, the uh, that equation is now synonymous with science uh, that's not done specifically because uh, the people who would otherwise fund it know what kind of answer they're going to get, and they want to keep that from actually being documented. So that's interesting that that isn't really followed up on. Uh, but then there is the uh, animal activist concerns are presented, kind of watered down. and then, But then there's a quote from a breeder, a uh, racetrack uh, aficionado and owner, uh, who comes out and says, Racing isn't cruel. No one would do anything to hurt horses. Uh, and continues saying, There's only love in this business and rarely any money. Which, again is an interesting quote, given that uh, horse racing <laughs> is all about money. Uh, money is the reason that Barbaro had uh, surgery, five hours of surgery, rather than just being put down or destroyed right there on the track. Uh, money is the reason that there these races exist. So it's again interesting that this quote isn't followed up by any of the uh, stats on how much money these 
these races make or how much money the person who said this makes. I doubt that he's living hand-to-mouth raising and running uh, racehorses. But at any rate, that's the, uh, the Inquirer perspective, which, as usual, kind of tries to straddle the fence, kind of have it both ways, kind of... Uh, go all over the terrain and then wind up throwing up your hands and saying, well, who knows? Uh, well, I mean, actually, the literal quote is, uh, and there are a lot of abuses, but I see good things and good people in racing as well. All we can do is keep working for the welfare of the horse and make sure they're treated right. Uh, of course, whipping them to make them run, it you would think that somehow is not treating them right, but that, again, is not uh, followed up on. Uh, turning to the Daily News, uh, we have a little more uh, robust commentary. Uh, this is a Rich Hoffman column from May 23rd, uh, and Rich really gets much closer into the basic question here. Uh, in the middle of his column, he says, when you have a a 1,100 or 1,200 pound animal traveling 35 or 40 miles an hour, and he takes a bad step, you're going to get something like that. That's a quote that Hoffman uh, then asks, but why is that acceptable? And why is it acceptable that most horses in Barbara's position would have been put down at the track rather than have the surgery because of the economic equation? It is hard, very hard, to make the counter-argument. Uh, it, and then he continues, it is, to be fair, just as hard to make the counter-argument for boxing and football, to name two. Well, now there, Rich is going just a little bit astray, because it's not as hard to make the counter-argument. Uh, because, as he then goes on, things go on in both of those sports and in all pro sports, really, that cannot be justified. Okay, so they're, uh, they're equivalent in that way. Then there's an interesting phrase, except for this. And you'd think that except for this would be a way of distinguishing horse racing from these other sports, but I think that he means except this is how we're about to justify it. Elite athletes, thinking people, are making the decisions about whether they want to be involved. And even given the dangers, there's no such thing as an acceptable death rate. Besides, all of those sports have acted to make themselves safer in recent years. So... He's gone back over to show how, in those other sports, there are, there is a difference, but it's being elided uh, between the question of a thinking, uh, deciding athlete and an athlete who has no choice to be there, and uh, a completely different consideration, which is the basic safety of it. So. Just in that part, uh, Hoffman kind of drops the ball because he doesn't come back to underscore this very central equation, which is uh, horses, you know, they may enjoy running, but horses don't organize horse racing because they want to race. Uh, it is people that force horses to race, and the question of whether it's inhumane, ethical, cruel, or what... Uh, is kind of secondary to the fact that horses are enslaved and forced to work to make money for people. And what's the equation for them? What do they get out of it? The glory? The food? Well, you know, domestic animals get food all the time without having to push themselves into an injury that may be fatal 
to them. Uh, and also, wild animals, you know, are seem to be content to work for their own food in their own way. What it seems horses would consider a living wage, something that would fairly compensate them for the work they do, would be freedom. And that's the one thing that they will never get. And we're going to go out on a song that I think takes off from this. Uh, it's not specifically about horse racing, but it's about the economic equation of people making money off of animals uh, where their value is not recognized as a worker. They're only seen as a commodity, as a thing that's part of the system. And yet, we're talking about sentient beings here. So, let's uh, take it away, green beings. Uh, with a song called Workaday Blues. I wake up and scratch myself and yawn. Another workday greets me with the dawn. My cubicle seems so.
Kiss for the Man. That's Workaday Blues uh, by Green Beings, a uh, song of mine. Again, uh, looking at the institution, the various institutions of uh, animal exploitation uh, in the name of human entertainment. Um, and now let's turn from that to our interview with Will Tuttle. Uh, those of you who were listening way back at VegCast number two may recall we played a track uh, from Will Tuttle's Animal Songs on that. Uh, and, of course, uh, he is uh, probably best known for his piano music, uh, but he is, of course, also an author, lecturer, and uh, so forth, and uh, he just had an article in Veg News, a little column there that uh, reminded me, hey, I wanted to actually have Will on the show uh, to talk rather than just uh, have his music, so we arranged that, and uh, we did an interview via phone, and we're going to listen to that now. With us now on VegCast is Dr. Will Tuttle, who is the author of The World Peace Diet and a, a musician, keyboardist, and composer uh, famous to uh, most of us in the vegetarian movement. Uh, Will, thanks for being on VegCast. Hey, thanks, Lance. It's great to be here. Um, I wanted to uh, kick this off with uh, a piece that you did uh, for Veg News, uh, which really hit home for me. If I could boil it down, uh, the word that jumped out at me was practice uh, right. in this piece. And, um, and, um, well, you know, the, uh, you're, a, you're a pianist also, a musician, and you know the importance of practice. And I guess, you know, having been raised in a musical family, maybe this um, has a special poignancy to me. And also, you know, years uh, in meditation centers and doing a lot of uh, practice. Right. Um, I just started dawning on me, I guess, five or six years ago, how in our culture we do practice. We're taught, we're trained, and we practice certain ways of looking at the world and ways of just basically of disconnecting um, from what we're doing, uh, right. specifically the reality of the suffering of the being that we're uh, eating and. Uh, that we practice this, and we, and we actually become experts in the art of disconnecting and of sort of um, numbing ourselves to what we're really doing. And that ability um, allows us to continue with the behavior, but there's a price that we pay for that, which right. is the numbing of our feelings. And I think that explains partially, or maybe even more than partially, to a, a large degree, why we're able to harm the earth and harm other humans because we have so much practice doing this in relationship to the animals that we're eating every day in these rituals that we do every day, basically, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner right. um, are very powerful um, sociological forces in our lives. Right, and the thing about um, uh, practice is that when, when you hear the word, we normally use it in terms of the arts anyway as doing something over and over again in order to get better at it, like with a, with an intentional uh, goal of, of reaching something that you're practicing to get better at. But uh, what you're pointing out is that people are practicing all the time, not because they necessarily consciously wish to become, you know, numb, but that they are, we, our culture kind of uh, foists this on us, and uh, many of us find ourselves in a situation where we are... For like practicing to become unconscious, really. 
Yeah, exactly. That's well said, Nance. Really, that's. I think that's basically it. It's 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 practice where we don't have actually a conscious goal of you know improving ourselves, but it, nevertheless, it is practice as a a saying in German, Übung macht den Meister, which means practice makes the master, and it's really true. Whatever we want to be, uh, whatever we practice, we will get good at. You know, right. that's the nature of it. And and in spiritual uh, traditions, there's always this emphasis on practicing uh, generosity and loving speech and benevolence and goodwill and cooperativeness and so forth, so we can become you know more adept at, at and honesty and so forth. Right. And yet, uh, and there's also the flip side of that. If we practice, um, you know, more negative states of mind, we'll be get really good at those. You know, right. anger and uh, deceitfulness. We can become they'll take over the more we practice them. And so, realizing this in our culture, there's this there's this underlying current of, of practice where we just don't talk about what we're doing. We don't connect with it. We don't acknowledge it. We consciously ignore it. And uh, what I point out in the book is that whatever we most forcefully ignore will control us the most. This is a um, psychologist starting to kind of realize what the old um, spiritual teachers understood, I think, a long time ago, is that we, when we forcefully ignore things, um, they end up controlling us because right. there's all this psychological energy tied up in it, and, and it becomes a projection. And uh, so, and, you, and I think a lot of us um, who, for some reason or other, have become vegans, uh, we realize this very strongly because as soon as we start trying to talk about this to other people, <laughs> we know about right. this forceful ignoring that it's either you know change the subject or you know walk away or do some something just to not have to deal with it. Sure. And and yet these forces, um, the really the forces that are required to kill millions of animals every day, those are powerful psychological forces, and they don't. Um, just disappear. You know, I think it's very naive on our part to think that we can do this and that all of the uh, results of that just sort of magically disappear into thin air, that it, we can just do that and right. have no uh, psychological um, ill effect. And in fact, I think it, it really does come back, and it's one of the driving forces underlying um, a lot of the sociopathic behavior that our culture engages in from, you know, mm-hmm. Warfare, terrorism, drug addiction, alienation, you know, all kinds of uh, behavior. Well, I, I was reminded of, um, I just immediately after or before uh, reading your column, I saw another study, or another, I don't know if it was another study, but another article on a uh, study showing that individuals who uh, make a practice of uh, intentionally harming animals, practicing cruelty to animals, um, are, uh, you know, it's, a, it's like a one-to-one correspondence with uh, individuals who grow up to be dangerous to humans. And it always kind of amuses me in a, in a sick way to see these stories because they never then make the jump, gosh, if we have an entire culture that is practicing cruelty to animals, might that also, you know, might this also play out <laughs> Yeah. On a cult, on a, you know, on a group level rather than just an individual level. And That's this a great seems, point. That is a really good point. Exactly. Yeah. So that this just the the practice thing really kind of uh, brought that home for me. But again, as you say uh, in the article, we also uh, can practice positive things and actually make a change. And I think that's also something important for vegans or would be vegans or vegetarians to to think about that it's not so much. Uh, you know, doing something that has an effect in the world is not so much having the right idea, the right ideology, or the right 
the best intentions or any of these so much as it is putting that into practice, actually doing the yeah. thing over and over and over. And that's, uh, that's something that you, you kind of got into there. And um, can you extrapolate on that at all in terms of the World Peace Diet, in terms of how that, uh, that idea fits in? Or- yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, what, I, what I see, uh, I, I basically, for the last, gosh, you know, it's over 15 years, every Sunday I've been going to these progressive churches, Unity and Unitarian churches around the United States, all 50 states, and um, at least playing the piano, usually speaking on Sunday morning, too, and what I've seen is that in, among progressive, open-minded uh, people, um, there is a tendency not to um, acknowledge the power of their behavior. You know, mm-hmm. everything is about consciousness. Everybody thinks, well, if we could just, uh, you know, raise consciousness, then everybody will naturally become more peaceful, more loving. Oh, yeah, everybody will go vegetarian, of course. Right. So, you know, they'll, they'll, but, but people don't, I don't think, realize the amazing power that our behavior has on our consciousness as well. It goes the other way. So if I continue to engage in behavior, like eating animal foods, for example, that's going to uh, affect how high or how open my consciousness will become because if I'm doing a behavior that that, uh, goes against where my consciousness wants to go, my consciousness won't go there. And this, I think, has been a big blind spot and continues to be in our culture, this this idea that somehow our, our actions don't really matter that much. It's really just about our consciousness. Yes. And uh, I have a few chapters, actually, where I go into the more historical, uh, a little bit anyway, into, yeah, into the historical development in our culture of um, eating animal foods and hurting animals and, and what that requires of us, especially men, you know, to, to do the work of uh, controlling and castrating and killing large animals and have a culture that's really, I don't think we realize, I didn't realize it for quite a while, but that's actually centered around this practice. This is really, I've, I've come to believe this is the core of our culture. Hmm. And um, it, most of our, um, our institutions and our values actually have to be in some, somehow aligned with this, uh, seeing animals as commodities to be used. Right. And so uh, that behavior, uh, you know, that, that, well, the behavior is eating them. You know, at the end of the day, we get this reward, you know, of the slaughtered lamb or the slaughtered cow and the, <laughs> and the secretions, the milk, and so forth. That's um, deeply embedded in our culture. And so none of us really consciously ever chose to eat meat. We just uh, inherited it by being born here. And, and uh, so we just naturally practice eating this, these foods, and we practice also the mentality of disconnectedness and exclusion that right. is required in order to do it, especially on the vast scale we're doing it today, where it's, um, you know, it's, it's a huge amount of meat that actually we're, we're right. eating, and, and uh, so it's a, it's, it takes uh, a, a lot of practice, uh, actually, I and mean, we, to, to, we have to constantly, and, we're, and we're, we're taught to do that as little kids, you know, I, I never knew what it was that I was eating. I was just told that I needed to eat it to get enough protein. And sure. later I was told, you know, the animals were put here for our, for our use. And so we have all these, um, these ideas in place. But the, uh, I think it's the actual practice uh, in day in and day out um, that reinforces the consciousness. Right. And uh, so, sure, we have to change the consciousness. Uh, and that is what changes our behavior. 
But the irony is that we won't be able to change our behavior, uh, our consciousness, until we change our behavior. So right, one of those things point. where um, they both we have to do work on both together. Great. Well, uh, let me just uh, twist the practice thing back over to music again, because, uh, of course, you are uh, well known for your uh, musical uh, compositions and uh, kind of a meditative style of playing, some, sometimes a meditative style of music. And I'm wondering if you see a, um, uh, a positive force, well, obviously it's a positive force, whether you see a chance for music and pra- the practice of music, not just like practicing scales, but the practice of doing music, performing music, hearing music, uh, is something that can actually have an impact on consciousness uh, in a way that might, I don't know, open up something, getting people to start uh, thinking in a different way or feeling in a different way that might help them start behaving in a different way. Yeah, great. Question. I, I love that. I mean, I I uh, think there's a lot of, of uh, truth to what to where your question is pointing at. That uh-huh. uh, sure, I can get up in front of a, a group of people and talk about what the animals go through and and uh, how we can stop eating them and, and uh, have compassion for all life and all that. Um, and the thing is, of course, that can get people irritated, upset, and who knows what. Some people maybe change, some people don't. But if if I, if I or someone, you know, say, if, you know, if it's me, if I if I just sit down and play music, no one can really argue with anything. And yet somehow I feel there's in there carried in the vibration of the music the same message, but in a way that's on an energy level. And you know, I can't, I don't know if it's as effective mm-hmm. or not. Um, it's just, it's another way of the, because uh, I just, I just have this intention when I play of, of uh, letting the music be a force for compassion and healing and world peace. And, uh, and then I just try to let my conscious mind get out of the way. And, you know, through the years of practice, my hands sort of know where to go on the piano in terms of, uh, chord structures and, and melodies and rhythms and new things will emerge out of out of it too because I like to play pretty improvisationally but I think uh, in the ancient days music was really seen as a vehicle of consciousness it wasn't seen so much as entertainment that's I think a new kind of a perversion of music I think originally music was a sacred powerful force that was really you know part of our our connection with the mystery of the universe and People would use it to journey, in, you know, in consciousness, and also use it to um, connect. And so I, I try to um, explore that myself, and I'm hoping uh, that the um, the music is opening doors in, in, in people that way. I've had a few people say that they went vegan listening to my albums, which I thought was kind of cool because there's nothing. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> That's great. Up in here, but music, you know, but I don't know if that's exactly real, because they really meant it, if they were just joking. But anyway, I, I've, heard, I've heard of that a little bit here and there. Well, know. it's good <laughs> music to go vegan by, anyway, even if it's not uh, the sole cause. It's still, it's, uh, it's a good soundtrack right. for, for the process. Right, right. And um, yeah. so you're, uh, right now you're still uh, generally, you're touring, you do go around and do the music. Do you have some, anything uh, coming up that I should make sure we let VegCast know, uh, listeners know about? Well, sure. I mean, um, uh, if anyone wants to go to my website, which is willtuttle.com, I have my schedule there, and you can see okay. if I'm coming to a city near you. I have, I'm always booked 
you know, four to six months ahead. Uh, right now, I'm in Missouri, for example, and soon we'll be in Kansas and then in Denver and then going down through the Southwest. We spent the last, I uh, with my wife, who's uh, also, we're, we're both, um, she's been a vegan for, uh, for quite, gosh, I guess almost 20 years. And, um, and she's an artist, so we do art exhibits and concerts and things and uh, lectures, and I'm doing lectures on my book as well. Right. Um, so, yeah, feel free uh, to see if I'm coming to an area near you, and I'm trying to set up uh, lectures on the um, book at vegetarian groups and at bookstores along the way, along with the usual uh, workshop I do on developing intuition and compassion. I usually do that through uh, progressive churches every weekend in a different church uh-huh. in the concerts. And then I'll be, uh, I think you'll probably be there too, right, at the Summerfest. Sure, in, uh, yeah. Got, um, Pennsylvania is coming up in yeah. weeks. All right. So, uh, yeah. Well, I look forward to seeing you at Summerfest. And, uh, all right, Will Tuttle, author of The World Peace Diet, thanks again for being with us on VegCast. Great. Keep up the great work, fans. Thank you. All right, thank you. Science. fact for this VegCast is a study on the portfolio diet developed at the University of Toronto. Uh, The goal here was to see if a so-called portfolio of foods, each with some minor cholesterol-lowering benefits, could have a larger additive effect when eaten together as part of a regular diet. And lo and behold, they found uh, that there was a direct link between how closely participants followed the portfolio plan and how much their blood levels of low-density lipoprotein, LDL, improved. Nearly a third of participants who stuck closest to the plan's goals lowered their LDL levels by 20% or more, an improvement that rivals the use of low-dose statins. And uh, this article uh, goes into some detail about statins, cholesterol-lowering drugs, and how uh, the choice of diet might be used in place of that, since there are problems, side effects, and so forth with taking drugs to regulate your cholesterol. Um, And what was this diet? Well, as the uh, third paragraph says, uh, the portfolio approach... Uh, strictly followed is a near-vegan regimen, meaning no meat, eggs, poultry, fish, or dairy, which the author of the article, Sally Squires, points out is unlikely to appeal to those who love juicy burgers, fries, and a shake. That's basically what it is. They don't explain, she doesn't explain exactly why it's near-vegan, even if strictly followed. Uh, It may be that it I would imagine it contains egg whites, which are the one animal food uh, that can be cholesterol-free. But participants were instructed to eat a mostly vegetarian diet rich in soy foods, almonds, fruit, vegetables, whole grains, and beans, as well as some healthy oils and margarine made with plant sterols. And they were advised to skip fat-free or low-fat dairy products uh, and were encouraged to forego whole eggs as well as poultry, fish, and lean meat. It's interesting that they're being urged to forego lean meat and skipping fat-free or low-fat dairy products makes it sound like they can, you know, just uh, tuck into a sirloin steak anytime or eat butter right out of the tub. But I don't think that's what they meant. 
Uh, the simple point to this particular science fact is another confirmation of the power of uh, vegan foods, and in this case, the uh, the outcome of the study seems to have shown that the closer people got to eating vegan, the more powerful the cholesterol-lowering effects were. And that's something that is basically operating and available to you anytime you're eating, and not just when you're listening to Science Fact. Okay, we are coming up to the end of this edition of VegCast, the 13th, the second one for May 2006. But before we go, I just wanted to uh, read a couple excerpts from a dining review. Uh, regular VegCast listeners will know how much I love Horizons, uh, formerly Horizons Cafe, now uh, just Horizons restaurant that opened in downtown uh, Philadelphia in February. We did a show about that. And finally, The Enquirer, the newspaper of record in the Delaware Valley, uh, did a review. Craig LeBan, who is uh, not in any way a vegetarian, uh, I wanted to read some of his review. Just for those of you who may be listening to this uh, from outside Philadelphia and may be coming to Philadelphia at some point in the future, uh, to let you know uh, that you should definitely check out Horizons. And it's not just me that thinks there's something special uh, going on there. Uh, one of the passages says, Horizons is more than a kind oasis for the long-wandering tofu tribe. It's a major addition to our repertoire, that's Philadelphia's, of special dining experiences. The food is so carefully wrought, so vividly infused with creativity and satisfying flavors, that any meat-eating dude with a half-open mind is in danger of being impressed. Uh, he goes on later, cast in vibrant Latin and Caribbean flavors and beautifully presented with an eye to details and complex contrasts. This is some of the most interesting cooking in town, vegan or otherwise. And uh, he goes into some specifics and describes the dishes uh, in a way that just cannot fail to make you hungry, uh, no matter when you ate last. But I'll skip over that, but he does say, I was especially impressed to see Landell's deeper explorations of pure vegetable cooking. His chilled cucumber soup is brilliant, buttery with avocado, vibrant with lime, and earthy with cumin oil, and the snap of smoked pumpkin seeds. Now, see, that is making me hungry, too. And he also uh, brings up Kay Jacoby's uh, magnificent desserts. That's my word, magnificent, but... Uh, he uh, gives her some props as well as, uh, well, he might, uh, naming some of the different desserts she makes. It says, sweet agave subs for honey in the silky creme brulee and a liberal use of coconut milk blended with soy milk and tofu goes a long way toward the convincing creaminess of her cheesecakes. They're so startlingly good, they finally define the seemingly contradictory notion of vegan indulgence. Then again, Horizons is bursting with many such taste revelations, says Craig LeBan, I inquire restaurant critic.
that's uh, just a little taste of that review and a little taste of Horizons. If you're coming to town, get over there uh, pronto. They're at uh, basically 7th and South. Uh, their website is horizonsphiladelphia.com. You can go there and get more information. And that's going to wrap it up for this VegCast. We'll see you in June. And uh, we'll be talking about Summerfest coming up and a few other things. I'll look forward to that. And until then, of course, as always, get out there and live like you mean it. Can